Welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. Aaron Judge just hit a 61st home run. The Mariners are somehow backing their way into the playoffs, but we don't care about any of that stuff because we are all in on our two football teams, the Washington Huskies and, of course, the Oregon Ducks. Mark, the Ducks are 3-1, and one, coming off of a spectacular come-from-behind victory. I wonder... How are you doing, my friend? I'm I'm doing great, Warren. I'm I'm feeling, you know, like uh, I had a near-death experience on Saturday, and I survived, you know, and I walked away from the plane crash, and so now I'm feeling like, you know, immortal. Like I feel like I could take on anything. So <laughs> feeling yeah, great. Absolutely, and we'll definitely get into that game the, uh, for today's podcast. What we're going to be looking at later on in the episode. It's kind of a, a review of where both teams are at now that we're one third of the way through the regular college football season and really on the 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 front of front end of the the Pac-12 season. Uh, but before we do a little dog news, just some some news and notes. Uh, this Sunday, Mark, the Washington Huskies are hosting an open walk-on tryout for any Husky college student that wants to be a part of the team. So, I mean, I'm just wondering like, what would what would be kind of going through your mind if you're just, you know, 19, 20 year old Mark Schmore walking around on the college, uh, on the college campus at the University of Washington or Oregon, whatever your choice. And uh, the coach says, hey, if you wanna be a part of this team, show up on Sunday and show me what you got. You know, I had a buddy text me, a, another Oregon fan text me that announcement. And he said, this is our chance to sabotage from within. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, it would be like Rudy meets Donnie Brasco. <laughs> like, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think if I was, if I was in the position of a, a, a young student who maybe quite hadn't given up the dream, I'd be, I'd be stoked to give it a shot, you know, to put on some pads and, um, and, and see what I could do and try to earn a roster spot. Like, you know, uh, I think I've, I always thought in another life, it would have been be the walk on at the end of, you know, who, who knows he's not going to get in the game. He's holding a tackling dummy. Yeah. Like you're part of the team, you know? And, uh, yeah, I had a, I had a good buddy from high school who, never played high school basketball, but he was just a tall athletic guy um, and just kind of crazy. And he walked on to, I, I believe it was uh, the PLU team, Pacific Lutheran. And he was the 12th guy. Like he was, he never touched the floor, but he was the 12th guy on the team and won a national championship if, I'm, if my memory serves me correctly. So by the way, Mark, have you seen the video of Eli Manning and the Chad Powers uh, tryout? A hundred percent, yes. And yeah. it's, it's fantastic. And there's a similar video that BYU basketball has done with Jimmer Fredette showing up to a BYU walk-on tryout, uh, <laughs> wearing a fat suit, so he's a little overweight. He's got moppy hair, but he's just shooting the lights out. And so both of those videos have been making the rounds and are, I mean, absolutely hilarious. Yeah. Well, I would love to see, you know, some former Husky grade or Seattle Seahawks star like Doug Baldwin 
show up and you know try out for the team that would be hilarious so um all right uh well in other husky news i meant to mention this last week just a a footnote but after michigan state after washington you know annihilated michigan state it was a big recruiting weekend we did pick up two recruits uh immediately following the game uh for the 2024 class six foot three uh edge three-star jackson jones out of arizona six foot three athlete landon bell out of nevada uh so that class is starting to get going now the 24 class even as we still have a few spots to fill up in the 23 class and then uh mark interestingly washington uh, at least according to a graphic that i found on twitter is the only school in the country right now to be ranked in all uh, of the fall sports to be ranked in the top 25 of all fall sports so a nice accomplishment there for the the washington athletic department uh and jen cohen and company so let's go ahead and let's get into these two games and then we'll do a little bit of our season you know stopping point review and and look ahead uh but the dogs win once again in convincing fashion over stanford their first pac-12 game uh, of the season 40 to 22 um two fourth quarter touchdowns by stanford made it much closer than maybe it was going into the fourth quarter uh Penix has his least efficient day and yet still throws for 309 yards and two touchdowns with zero interceptions and zero sacks and really zero pressure uh Wayne Talapapa gets his first uh 100 yard day with 120 yards on 13 carries including a 34 yard touchdown run and uh Mark Roma Dunze goes off this week. He's a wide receiver one for the Huskies. He goes off for eight catches, 160 yards and a touchdown, which makes him the fourth receiver on this team to have a hundred yard receiving game in four games this season. So which uh, I believe you called on this show. Did you not warn? Didn't you tab him as the next guy to go over the century mark? I did indeed. In fact, uh, on Twitter, I went on uh, and made some bold predictions. And uh, one of them was that the Huskies would have at least five sacks or interceptions, which they ended up having eight sacks. Amazing. Plus an interception, plus a fumble recovery. I, you know, predicted that Roma Dunze would be the leading receiver I predicted that we would have our first 100-yard rusher, which we did. Um, so I was firing on all cylinders in my predictions on Saturday. Um, and, yeah, the defense, uh, they they looked dominant, especially the front, front eight looked dominant in ways that we haven't seen since maybe uh, the first half of the 2016 season before JoJo Mathis got injured. Uh, when they were sacking guys left and right. Braylon Trice got two sacks. Uh, ZTF had his breakout game for the season with a sack and a half and a strip sack. Uh, Jeremiah Martin got into the action. Voitanufi got another sack. Um, Alfonso Tupatala, our middle linebacker, picked up two sacks. So those guys made life very difficult for Tanner McKee, who... 
Uh, ironically, Mark, I saw this statistic on Twitter earlier today. Tanner McKee ranked the the highest rated quarterback in the Pac-12 this past weekend when not pressured. But <laughs> he also had eight sacks and the team had 10 tackles for loss. So kind of a misleading statistic, if I would say so myself. Yeah, so he's the Jared Goff of the Pac-12, <laughs> essentially. Like that. I Well, I did want to ask you, Warren, about... So I was flipping back and forth. You know, I wasn't watching this game exclusively, but I was, I was keeping a, a closer eye on it. Uh, and it did seem like in the first half that maybe it was closer than the score indicated, but Stanford had a couple turnovers that were absolutely catastrophic for him where first they're driving down and they're inside the 20 they put together a really nice drive and McKee throws an interception so that kind of halts Stanford's first attempt to really get in the game from a scoring perspective and then later uh, Stanford fumbles the ball on their first play from scrimmage in the series and Washington then you know scores in two plays or whatever and so I think the halftime score if I remember right it was 17-7 Washington at the half but it kind of felt to me like this could be like a 14-10 Stanford game if a couple plays go different. Like it didn't feel like Washington was dominating that half. It did feel like they just dominated the third quarter. And then I didn't really pay close attention. You mentioned the garbage time stuff for Stanford to make it close in the fourth. But it felt like for, for two quarters, it, 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 was, uh, it was maybe a little closer. And then, and then Washington just kind of blew the doors off in the third quarter. Is that, is that a fair estimation? Well, you know, I, I think it is up for interpretation. I, I don't think it felt that way as far as from the, you know, the way that I was watching it, you know, really in many ways, the opposite. Uh, there was one drive where I think we got four sacks on Tanner McKee on one series and uh, they were able to continue to, to convert third and fourth down. Um, and then ultimately that resulted in the interception. Uh, but by no means did it seem like Stanford was really having their way. They were just kind of miraculously converting third and fourth downs. Um, and McKee was getting battered, which I knew would come back to hurt them later on in uh, the it, later on in the game. And then conversely, the Huskies were moving the ball with absolute ease until they got into the, the red zone and then they had a couple of third downs stall out. And so they had to settle for field goals. Um, so I was looking at it really from the other side of, man, this could be a 24 to seven game or, you know, a 30 to seven game, if not for just a couple of missed passes. I mean, there yeah. was right on the opening uh, play Penix you know, through a deep ball, I believe it was to Jalen McMillan that was just off by a foot. And he, I mean, he would have gone 80 yards for a touchdown. Um, and so, you know, he was just, Penix was just a little bit off on a couple of those throws where in previous games, he hit those types of throws. So I really didn't see it that way at all. I mean, I was a little nervous that we had not done more with our chances in the first half. But I didn't really take it from the perspective that Stanford had squandered their chances. I thought that it was more so that Washington had not fully put their foot down in, in the first half like they have 
in the previous games. Interesting. Well, I hope your interpretation is correct as someone that's playing Stanford next weekend, you know, or is uh, someone rooting for a team playing Stanford? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, think, uh, you know, the Stanford's turnover margins against USC and Washington have been so disproportionate that it does kind of look like, man, if this team just stopped turning the ball over, maybe they can hang in a few games. Uh, but from, from what you're indicating, there were issues beyond just simply the turnovers that, that and, really... And- you know, I'll give I'll, obviously you want to give the Husky players and their staff credit for what they accomplished. Eight sacks is fantastic. Uh, but there was a fatal flaw with the way that this new slow mesh offense was working itself out on Saturday. And, and Mark, you may be kind of familiar with the concept of the slow mesh, but it's, yeah. you know, it's an R, uh, you know, an RPO. And Tanner McKee and his backup running back, uh, you know, they just seem to have trouble getting the timing of that right, where it seemed like so often it took them forever to make that that decision to hand off or pass. And it was just leaving both those guys exposed to just get crushed, you know, by oncoming uh, defenders. And maybe if the offensive line for Stanford were performing better then that would have worked out better for them. But I would, I would guess if I'm David Shaw, I'm going back to the drawing board after this past Saturday's game against Washington, knowing you're going up against a, a very talented defense in Oregon. And I'm saying we got to move faster on these RPO, you know, options because like they're going to, I mean, Tanner McKee won't make it through the season alive if he has to endure more of what the Huskies gave him on Saturday. Well, and it's, it's funny that you bring that up about the slow mesh, which they've adopted this year, because the team that has really taken that and made it their own is Wake Forest. Right. Played a double overtime game against Clemson. And they ended up losing in double overtime, but they went up and down the field on Clemson, who is, you know, always one of the best defensive teams in the country. And I mean, they've got that thing to perfection there and Stanford just has, has a ways to go in, in terms of really calibrating that for their offensive player. And interestingly, Mark, you may know this, but I heard this on the radio that uh, David Shaw reached out to Wake Forest and asked them for information so that he could study their offense and they declined. (laughs) So basically Wake Forest coach Dave Clawson wants to keep keep it all under lock and key. Yeah. He's basically like, I'm, I'm not sharing the intricacies of this with anyone. Yeah. And so, so Shaw and his offensive coordinator, they just studied film all summer long, tried to figure it out themselves. And clearly they have not figured it out to the extent that Wake Forest has. So it could be a blowout game for Oregon, or it could be that, that, you know, Stanford says, Hey, this is not working. We've got to make some changes. And maybe you see a different type of Stanford team this Saturday against Oregon. But uh, yeah, so Mark, give us a little bit of breakdown about the the epic game uh, between Oregon at, at Wazoo and, uh, and and what you saw from that game. Yeah, ep- epic is right. Uh, you know, final score 44 to 41. And just to kind of put that in context, the Ducks were trailing 34 to 22 
with less than seven minutes to play. Washington State had just scored to go back up by two scores. It felt at that point like if Oregon's going to do this, they're going to have to pretty much play error-free the rest of this game, and that was a tall order. Uh, And then they had a three-minute stretch where they scored at the end of a nice touchdown drive. They got a three and out on D. They scored again. And then they went back on D and intercepted Cam Ward and ran it back for a touchdown. And they scored 21 points in three minutes to just kind of seize control of the game. Uh, the Cougars ended up getting a, you know, attack on touchdown in the final seconds to kind of make the score a little closer. But uh, it was essentially a game where the Cougars dominated for the better part of, you know, about 55 minutes. And Oregon had this three minute stretch where they just stole it, frankly. And uh, it's one of those games that as a fan, you're relieved and kind of thrilled by how it all played out. And you also just kind of feel bad for the opposing team because you know that they were the more deserving team for most of the game. And, uh, and yet at the same time, you know, if you're Oregon, you just, you won your home opener on the road against a pretty feisty team against a good team. And there were some things to really be encouraged about, especially by the way the offense played. Bo Nix with a career-high 428 passing yards. Uh, Troy Franklin was huge, had 137 receiving yards, including the 50-yard touchdown that put Oregon ahead for good. So some really positive uh, things, especially with the offense. And, and more than anything, you just you find some real positivity in the perseverance and the fight to come back from down two scores late in a game like that on the road. And to pull it out, that's a that's a character win for these guys. Yeah, and I mean, clearly we know that Oregon has had some trouble with Washington State over the years, particularly in Pullman. But Mark, collapsing in the final minutes is nothing <laughs> new for Washington State. I mean, the expression cooking it is there for a reason. Would you say I so I didn't watch the game, but would you say that this was more an example of Oregon really just playing incredibly clutch in a, in vital moments, or was this the Cougars cooging it once again? You know, I mean, I think uh, I think if you were a Washington State fan. Um, there were probably some things in that flurry, that 21 point flurry, where you're, you're probably screaming about why are we not playing up on these receivers? We're giving these receivers too much space to move down the field or, or why did we not do this on that drive where we got a three and out? I mean, the only three and out Oregon forced all game was when they absolutely had to have one. That, that type of thing has to be infuriating if you're a Washington State fan and you've been playing so well offensively. But really, the, you know, the key play was the pick six that essentially, uh, you know, Cam Ward taking over with about a minute and a half to go. I, as an Oregon fan, was thinking we gave them too much time. Like mm-hmm. Cam Ward could find a way to drive the field because he played great. He played as well as I kind of thought he would play coming into the year. You know, I was pretty high on him. And then we had kind of talked about the first few games. He hadn't really kind of lived up to that billing. Well, he did in this game. And so I was nervous when he took the field for that final drive that he was going to drive down the field and, and pull it out. And then he throws an interception on a screen pass that happens to get run back for a touchdown. So, I mean, is that, is that cooging it? You know, sure. I mean, Bo Nix threw an equally awful pick six earlier in the game that felt like a backbreaker. 
it just happened that Bo Nix's came in the second quarter and Cam Ward's came in the fourth quarter. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I give, I give Oregon's offense um, quite a bit of credit for putting together those two drives when they absolutely needed them. I think that that's one thing where I, I will say that, you know, Oregon came through and, and made some winning plays when they really had to against the defense that had done a pretty good job of, of slowing them down in the red zone and, and kind of forcing them to shorten their drives and kick field goals instead of score touchdowns. Well, you know, I think it'll certainly uh, be a game that both teams will remember very clearly and will have their own interpretations of, of you know, whether or not Oregon won it or if the Cougars lost it. But I think this is a good Oregon team. And I think it's a good Washington State team. And both those teams are going to continue to. I think be very successful throughout the rest of the season. So big win, no matter how you get it in Pullman this year against a very talented and scrappy uh, Washington state Cougars. So let's take, let's take a little time to look at where we're at. We're a third of the way through the season. We're through our, uh, our non-conference schedule. We've just gotten into PAC 12 play four games in to a 12 game season. Uh, So you know, I think for most Husky fans, we have absolutely exceeded our wildest expectations up till this point in the season. If I had said I believed we could be four and O, oh, I don't think that that would have been entirely shocking. But yeah. the way that we've become four and O, oh, certainly that is not something that any of us could have predicted. But now the Huskies find themselves uh, four and O. Oh, ranked number 15 in the country, Uh, but all their games have been at home thus far. So there's still a lot that they need to be able to prove in order to be the kind of team that we think that they are thus far into the season. But right now, the, the lights are green and all signs are go, and we are, we are moving in a very good direction. Absolutely. And I think what's, what's what's just kind of funny to me about looking at the Husky schedule is, you know, we circled, okay, Michigan state is obviously is the marquee game uh, that I think both of us expected the Huskies would probably lose because uh, Michigan state came in pretty highly touted Michigan state followed up that loss to the Huskies by just getting drilled by Minnesota now you start kind of scratching out their schedule and it's like, well, that could be a seven and five team yeah. pretty easily. Uh, so they're probably not nearly as good as we thought they were two weeks ago. On the other hand, Washington started the season against Kent state and, and took care of them rather easily. Uh, and then Kent state followed that up by playing uh, Oklahoma pretty tough for a half. I think it was seven yeah. to three for a good portion of that first half against Oklahoma then they go and they actually gave Georgia a significantly tougher game than Oregon did. They lost to Georgia 39 to 22, mm-hmm. which is like not a bad score at all. If you're a team like, like Kent state. So, uh, so it's funny to look at the Husky schedule and say, well, they're four and oh, Michigan state doesn't seem like they're nearly as good as we thought, but Kent state actually that win in week one was, was maybe a little more uh, telling about how good Washington was than, than we thought at the time. Absolutely. And I'm, I mean, I 
I, I'm just excited for Kent State. I want to see what those guys can do now that they've made it through just the gauntlet of the first four games of the season because oh. they seem like they're a really good team. And I would think from here on out, it should be pretty smooth sailing for Kent State. And some of those guys are probably going to end up having really, really good years. So, I mean, they made it through healthy and that's, that's, and they got some big time paychecks out of it. So that's a big win for Kent state, but yeah, so let's go, th- we'll, we'll go through, we'll, we'll break down offense, defense, special teams, and then look ahead uh, to next Saturday's game. So for the offense last year's offense was so atrocious uh, for uh, the university of Washington under uh, John Donovan and Jimmy Lake's run the damn ball philosophy. And this Husky team is firing on all cylinders. I've got to give them uh, an A minus for what they've been able to accomplish. They're number one in the Pac-12 in points per game, uh, yards per game, 530 yards per game, fifth in the nation, uh, passing yards per game, first in the Pac-12 with 369. Michael Penix Jr., Mark, remember we talked about the athletics top 100 transfer list and how Penix did not make it onto the list. Well, they just released a new list and said, guess what? We made a big mistake. And mistake number one is Michael Penix. He needs to be at the top of this list and uh, deservedly. So he's leading the PAC 12 and the nation in passing yards, leading the PAC 12 in passer rating with a 172 passing touchdowns uh, for the Pac-12. Uh, and when you've got a quarterback that's leading the nation in, in passing yards, you know you've got some receivers doing good work. McMillan, Odunze, and Polk are in the top 11 for receiving yards in the Pac-12. Uh, they have a top six graded tight end in West in Westover. Uh, their offensive line is rated in the top five for almost every position. And um, and then they're second in the nation in sack differential. So uh, they haven't given up a sack uh, to any team to their starting quarterback. Um, uh, Sam Heward got sacked in one game when he was backing up, but Michael Penix has not been touched yet. So the only reason why I, I give them an A minus and not an A plus that, that's it, what I was going to ask you, Warren. Is yeah, there, I mean, is no, there is nothing in the summary that you just gave that makes me think that they should have a minus next to their right. letter. Why, so why, why would anybody give them a minus? And, and certainly I don't want to be one of these ridiculous Husky fans that's always critical about everything. But the only reason why they don't get an A or an A plus is because they have struggled in the red zone. Uh, Twice against Michigan State, they had the ball first and goal at the one, did not get it done. This past Saturday against Stanford, as I mentioned, particularly in the first half, uh, they had multiple occasions where they got into the red zone and had to settle for field goals. Um, So that's the only drawback is wanting to see them get that done more regularly. We know that no team is going to be 100% touchdowns in the red zone, but I think that there's a little bit more meat on the bone for this offense in the red zone 
And that would be the only area of improvement. But other than that, they are just firing on all cylinders. Yeah, I think it's they've they've been a revelation, and and you've you've covered it. But I think uh, just to marvel at how competent this offense looks compared to to last year, and you know, I think we figured Penix coming in for Dylan Morris would be an upgrade if if Penix was healthy. Uh, I think there was it seemed like there was some thought amongst Washington insiders that the receiving core that they had could kind of be unlocked if they had a quarterback come in um, that was, you know, capable of, of helping them out. Uh, but I, I think what you just mentioned with the offensive line is, is kind of a, a story that hasn't really gotten enough notice yet, which is that, that you know, they've kept Penix clean, which is huge mm-hmm. to keep him healthy. And they've been good enough thus far opening up holes in the running game that hasn't been as much of a priority for Washington because they're leading the nation in passing. So, you know, you're not necessarily going to see that emphasized at at this point until a team really kind of somehow minimizes the passing attack, but uh, yeah, they're clicking on all cylinders. And I think it's, it's fair to say they've got, you know, the most potent offense in in the PAC 12, or at least, um, you know, maybe, maybe there's somebody else that you might put in a tie with them, but after the way USC played against the Beavers, I think you have to say the Huskies look like the most imposing offense in the conference. Well, with, with the body of work that we've seen so far, I think that you, you would need to say that, but obviously there's going to be some tests. They have to go on the road, which we'll talk about that in a little while. They're going to play Oregon state. Who's obviously shown that they can handle playing with the big boys like uh, like USC. Obviously, we've got to go on the road against a very talented defense in Oregon. Um, so will this juggernaut continue? That's That remains to be seen. But from what we've seen thus far, this is certainly the best case scenario that we could have ever imagined. And, you know, and even with all of the spectacular passing numbers, it's not like this is a Washington state type of air raid offense where they're not running the ball. Uh, you know, in most yeah. cases they're, they're passing 55% of the time and rushing 45% of the time and being fairly effective at both. So, uh, and then, you know, just a little footnote, Jackson Kirkland, who is a two time all pack 12 selection as an offensive guard and left tackle he's just getting back into the rotation right. played about 20 snaps against stanford with some mixed results but um and some of the plays that he was firing he was dominant and we know that you know he was able to shut down Kayvon Thibodeau last year uh, that's a guy that if he's really doing what he can do that's another layer of protection that that the huskies can look forward to yeah i do seem to remember that it was going around that he shut down cave on thibodeau and then a twitter video got passed around of, of thibodeau beating him for a sack but we don't we don't need to litigate that we don't need to go back there um what how how do how do you uh size up the washington defense a third of the way through the season what grade do you give them more well, I think uh, the, the defense has been a little bit more exposed. Um, 
I give them a solid B. And the reason for that is that this defense has really done everything that you would want a defense to do. They just haven't done it all in the same game at the same time. So they're they're leading uh, the Pac-12 in sacks, and they're third in the nation in sacks. But in many ways, that was because of an incredibly dominant game against Stanford. Um, they've got PFF's top-graded Pac-12 edge defenders in uh, Braylon Trice and Jeremiah Martin. Those are the, the number one and two. Uh, linebacker Alfonso Tupatala is uh, fourth in the Pac-12 in sacks. Uh, but I think what I really like is that uh, last year, UW was giving up 4.76 yards per rush, which was 105th in the FBS. And this year, they're giving up 2.64, which is 10th in the yeah. nation. Um, and I think that's going to be a really important storyline, especially going into this Friday night's game against UCLA, who we know wants to rush the ball with Zach Charbonnet and a very mobile quarterback in DTR. Um, so overall, I give them uh, good marks. Why didn't they get an A? The, the defensive backfield, which has historically been a strength, for the University of Washington has been exposed on multiple occasions thus far this season. They do have a few interceptions, but they've also had injuries that have left them uh, a little bit thin at that position. Uh, but to be fair, some of the biggest plays that have taken place uh, in the defensive backfield against the Huskies have been in the fourth quarter when the Huskies had a sizable lead and they were also mixing in true freshmen and backup players. So I'm not overly harsh there with that, but I think if there is an area of weakness right now, until we get some of our starters back, it's definitely that defensive backfield. Yeah. I was, I was noticing a stat where Washington is uh, ninth in the country in terms of their defensive yards per rush and they're 104th in the country in terms of yards per pass. Uh, but as you mentioned, a lot of those big, you know, deeper passes have, have happened, you know, maybe later in the game when, when they're a little less telling. Uh, but, but I, I think your, your B strikes me as a, as a fair score here. I, I would say as an outside observer that um, the Washington defense certainly is more stout up front than they were last year and certainly comes across to me like, they're an above average unit that can really, you know, wreak havoc, um, especially in the backfield um, defensively. And, and, and that I think the vulnerabilities that they may have shown up in the passing game are not, not big enough to really get too excited about if you're, if you're preparing for a Washington game, like this is uh this is not look to me like an especially vulnerable uh, team. So yeah, I think, I think a B is, is a fair score. Yeah, and I think um, this defense is doing what we thought that they were going to do from the perspective of at least this is what we talked about in the preseason, Mark, that this was going to be a defense that was going to attack. And when you attack, 
you leave yourself vulnerable to some bigger plays. If you want to get eight sacks, you have to potentially risk the possibility of giving up a long throw every now and again. And that's what's happened. We're stopping the run. We're committing to stopping the run. We're getting after the, the quarterback. And we're asking those defensive backs to really, you know, give a Herculean effort in order to stop uh, some really talented wide receivers. So, you know, ideally it'd be great if we had four lockdown defenders in the backfield that didn't need any assistance, but I will take this defense over last year's bend and keep bending and keep bending and keep bending and keep bending. And then, you know, eventually 10 minutes later, give up a field goal as opposed to, you know, really having some game changing defensive plays, um, you know, help, shift the momentum for for the the husky offense so i'm i'm happy with that and then really quickly special teams i'd give them a b um there were especially in game one a couple of really poor tackling examples uh trying to to bring down the returners uh giles jackson had a fumble in game one against kent state on a return but really, since then, they've been very solid. They seem to have cleaned up uh, the, you know, the the coverage return uh, tackling. Peyton Henry was named Pac-12 Player of the Week for his uh, four for four performance, uh, kicking field goals against Stanford. So right now, you know, I would say we haven't been in a position where we've needed the special teams, especially a fourth quarter field goal to to seal the game. Right now, I think we feel pretty good, but there's still plenty of season to be tested when it comes to the special teams. I think I think that's a that's a fair way of putting it. It's you know, um, the, it's rare to have your special teams win or lose a game, but it's um, when that happens, that's it. It's kind of you're either going to get an A or you're going to get a D. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's very few times where it's an in between if after a, a game like that. So if they've just simply done their job and you haven't noticed them either way, then I think I think a B is the right place to slot them in. And I will say for Peyton Henry, you know, no one really sees him as a guy that's got an NFL leg. Um, I think his his long is 49 yards. He did make a 47 yarder against Stanford which is very encouraging. Um, so I think, you know, if if you can feel good about your field goal kicker from 47 yards in, in college football, uh, that's, you know, that's pretty decent. So I wouldn't say he's a weapon, but at least thus far, he's not a liability. And, uh, you know, you'll take that whenever you can get it in, in this day and age. So Mark, let's talk about the Ducks a third of the way into the season. What are, you know, just from a, a sweeping standpoint, you know, what is your perspective on this team thus far? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. They started the year ranked 11th in the country and then got annihilated by Georgia. And it kind of felt like that took them out of kind of any national conversation. Uh, and yet here they are, they're back 13th in the AP poll, almost back to where they started um, just a few weeks later. And the reason for that is, uh, 
truthfully, they've played one of the toughest schedules in the country thus far. If you think about it, Warren, that they've got three of their four opponents currently ranked in the top 30 because Wazoo is just sitting there still in the others receiving votes side of the AP poll. Mm. So they've played three really good opponents uh, and they've played two of them outside of Autzen Stadium. So there's not a lot of teams in the country that have been tested to the same extent uh, that Oregon has. And so, whereas, you know, we're kind of looking at Washington saying they look really good, but we're also not sure how much stock to put in some of this, especially, you know, the big win for Michigan state looks less big and all that stuff with Oregon. I do think that the measuring sticks are accurate. Now the measuring stick they got against Georgia showed that they've got a long way to go to be able to compete with a team like Georgia but the checkpoints that have come since then, crushing a top 25 BYU team at home, having to come back from multiple scores down late to win a tough game on the road at Wazoo, like those are significant, you know, tests that they've had had to pass now. And, uh, and so I think Oregon fans, after the kind of the trauma of the way the season started, I think have now kind of settled into a place of, okay, we have a, we have a, a pretty good team. Uh, I don't know if they're the best team in the Pac-12. I think they're one of four or five that is going to be in that conversation, depending on how the next several weeks go. But we know that they're, you know, they're, they're pretty good. And, uh, and they're not nearly as bad as they looked uh, week one against Georgia. And, and so I guess for that, we just kind of have a sigh of relief. Yeah, I mean... And how good is Georgia? Oh my goodness. Like, obviously they had a little bit of a letdown against, against Kent state, but just seeing what they've done and then what Oregon has done, the gap between the number 13 team in the nation and Georgia seems to be just a mile wide. Yeah, I think I saw it as somebody saying, I have no doubt that if the Ducks played Georgia today, it would be a different game. It would be 45 to 14 <laughs> instead of 49 to three. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah, and I mean, and and Oregon fans on some level would probably feel pretty good about that. So yeah. I think that just does goes to show how good that Georgia team is. So you know, Mark, obviously after game one, you had said, in spite of only scoring three points, I saw some glimpses in this offense. So how would you grade out this Oregon offense, especially maybe taking game one out of the equation? Yeah. So if I, and that that's, that's kind of how I put this together is I was like, well, they got an F in both categories in game one. If you lose 49 to three, you know, we're not going to like put too many silver linings out there. But if I'm, if I'm just kind of taking, pointing it as terms of like, how, how good is this offense going into the rest of the season? I'd put the offense at about a B plus right now. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the raw numbers, they're averaging almost 40 points a game, which I think is, um, you know, it's right up there in, in terms of the Pac-12, third or fourth in the Pac-12. They're averaging almost 500 yards a game. Uh, they scored 40 plus against BYU and against Washington state, which I think is a kind of a good indicator of what their ceiling is against, against the competition that they're going to get the rest of the season. 
Um, I think the, the biggest thing that I like about them is that they've shown that to have a really good balance between passing and rushing. They're passing for almost 300 yards a game. They're rushing for almost 200 yards a game. Uh, and they're the only Pac-12 team that's in the top three in both of those categories. Uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't some other Pac-12 teams that have pretty good balance, but it just goes to show that, that Oregon has maintained a really, really good balance. Uh, obviously, the biggest kind of revelation in all of this has been Bo Nix, who has just played so much better than I think Oregon fans thought he was going to play this season, especially after week one against Georgia. He, he's, he's been really you know, outside of, of one bad pass against Washington state, which was returned 95 yards for a touchdown. I mean, he's played outstanding in, in every game that they've had uh, since that Georgia game. And so that's an encouragement. And then the other biggest encouragement for the Oregon offense is the offensive line, which has not given up a sack all season and is averaging five yards a carry on the ground. And so they're opening up holes in the running game they're the only team in the country that has kept their quarterbacks clean. You mentioned, you know, the Huskies, they get the asterisk because it was Sam Heward that was sacked and not Penix. But, you know, um, Oregon thus far hasn't, hasn't had a sack against him. And so uh, going into the rest of the play, Oregon seems to have a better quarterback than we thought we were having. They seem to have an offensive line that's deserving of the preseason hype. And they seem to have a ceiling of a team that can score 40 points a game against a good defense. So Mark, you, you, you guys hired Dan Lanning as a defensive coach. And this team is really firing on all cylinders from an offensive perspective. At this point, you would think, we're going to win the national championship, right? Like we've got a defensive coach and our team is averaging 39.5 points per game. This is a recipe for, you know, national success. How would you grade out the defense thus far this season? Yeah. Defense is a, is a tougher grade. And I landed even after the Georgia game. So just leaving out the Georgia game, uh, and really zeroing in on, on the BYU and the Washington State games, I give them a C minus. Uh, and that may be a little, a little tough. They were, they were actually pretty good against BYU, um, but, but really struggled against Washington State. And, uh, and, you know, C minus may not be giving them enough credit for how well they played against BYU, but um, they're giving up 31 points per game, which is, uh 10th in the conference right now and you might say oh well you know they give up 49 to georgia what's it after well they also give up 41 to washington state and so um so they're they're giving up a lot of points they've been good against the run they've been uh they're one of the top teams in the pac-12 against the run they give up uh less than 90 yards a game rushing they were really good uh against the rush in both the byu and the washington state games but they've got a major red flag right now in, in the pass defense. They have the worst pass defense in the Pac-12 statistically, giving up over 300 passing yards a game. If you throw out Eastern Washington, every FBS quarterback they've played, Stetson Bennett of Georgia, Jaron Hall against BYU, Cam Ward against Washington State, three good quarterbacks, 
but all of them threw for over 300 yards against them. And I, I think the only interception they have against that trio was the pick six to seal the game against Wazoo at the very end there, or no, they got another, they got another interception against Cam Ward. Um, that was kind of a, a controversial call at the time. So, um, there are some major issues to be fixed. I think uh, the way that they've defended the run at least gives me some sense that like this defense does have the potential of, of continuing to improve and, and, and becoming, you know, more of a net positive uh, for the team and that maybe they can fix some of the issues at the back end. But, but for now it's, it's a, it's a glaring weakness in, in, you know, what, otherwise seems to be a pretty complete team. So Mark, let's let's kind of wrap up this grading section by just taking a, a big picture view looking ahead. Um, so we're a third of the way through. That means we've got eight more games left. What do the next eight games look like now that you've seen, now that you've got four games in the rear view mirror? Well, I, I hesitate to do this just in the sense that anytime you start chalking out wins and losses on the schedule, um, there's always the game that you've counted as a win that then comes back at you as a loss. So I don't want to take anyone for granted outside of maybe Colorado. Uh, but if I'm looking at Oregon's schedule, it's interesting because they've played, like I said, they've played three pretty tough opponents to start the year. And then they have arguably the three toughest games left on their schedule all in late November. They play the Huskies, mm-hmm. then they play Utah, and then they play Oregon State, their last three games. So this middle stretch is, is this interesting you know, combination of they've got Stanford this week, and it's Arizona, and it's teams like UCLA and Cal, who are, I think, good enough to beat Oregon if Oregon doesn't bring their A game, Mm -hmm. but also teams where you feel like, well, Oregon should be able to take care of Stanford and UCLA at home. They should be able to take care of Cal and Arizona on the road. So I think there's a chance for Oregon as a team because of how tough of a schedule they played to start the year, there's a chance for them to really pick up some traction and put together several games in a row of, of playing at a really high level and, and, and really correct some things. Uh, but I've also been an Oregon fan long enough to know it, it could get rocky. They could lose, they could lose a road game. They have no business losing. And we're kind of pulling our hair out because, you know, it's middle of October and, and it feels like we're an afterthought in the conference race. So I don't want to get too far out of myself, but I will say that the schedule is pretty hyper loaded in September and November, which makes these next few weeks pretty interesting. They do. And they also make them you know, very important for, you know, you don't want to slip up in October when November's slate looks pretty daunting, especially knowing what recent history has suggested Utah is like in November. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's going to be a tough game. You know, looking ahead, the Huskies, they like I mentioned before, thus far they've only played four home games. They go on the road this Friday against UCLA, uh, but five out of the next eight games are on the road. And I think that when we went through this at the beginning of the season and we kind of slotted out the wins and the losses for 
both teams. I didn't realize how good the Huskies were going to be, but also I didn't really realize how good the rest of the Pac-12 was going to be. And yeah. I'm looking at this schedule and saying, okay, UCLA, 4-0, they could be a problem. Cal, 3-1, and almost beat Notre Dame. They've got the leading rusher in the Pac-12 right now with this superstar, uh, Jade Knott, who's just come out of nowhere. Uh, we've got Oregon on the road. We've got Washington State on the road. Those are four games that that we could lose any or all of those games if we're not ready with our best performance. Um, plus, we've got a challenging game against Oregon State on a Friday night in November. So, um, you know, by no means am I thinking, okay, well, we made it through the first four games, 4-0. and oh, That means we're a lock to finish, you know, 10-2 and two or 11-1. and one. This this season still has many tests to be overcome for this this Washington Husky team, um, and so yeah, let's let's just take for the last couple of minutes talk a little bit about uh, our upcoming games. Friday night, Huskies on the road at UCLA. Apparently, UCLA is giving tickets away for free, <laughs> trying to get people to come to the game because it's just a total debacle. Uh, trying to get that stadium filled right now. Even Troy Aikman is calling them out on social media. Uh, but just a few storylines. For me, the big storyline is what will the Huskies be able to do in terms of shutting down the run with both Charbonnet and DTR? Uh, they had trouble with Connor Schley of Kent State. They seem to have fixed those issues, but DTR is going to be the biggest test that they've had thus far. And, uh, you know, there's mixed reviews on DTR, but from a QBR standpoint, he's the second rated quarterback in the PAC 12 right now. And, uh, he can, you know, he's experienced. He's, he's, a, he's a senior. He knows what he's doing. Um, so that's a concern for me. And then one of the other fun storylines is, the two sack leaders in the Pac-12. I mentioned Braylon Trice. The leader with five sacks in the Pac-12 right now is a, a defensive uh, edge named Leatu Latu, who interestingly was a part of the same recruiting class that came to the University of Washington in 2019. He got injured in 2020 and was declared medically ineligible by the Washington football staff. He was released from the team and somehow he was able to be picked up and approved by UCLA and is performing at an elite level. So that's an interesting storyline uh, coming into this game. And, you know, Mark, honestly, I'm confused about UCLA. I don't know if they're good or if they're bad. Because yeah. if you look at some of their scores, you would say, well, gosh, you know, they hardly beat South Alabama. Yeah. You should have no trouble with them. But on the other end of things, they're, they're averaging 42 points per game in scoring. Defensively, they're the, defensively, they're the number 
two team in the Pac-12 holding teams to to four to 18 points per game, uh, uh, you know, ahead of USC, Washington, California, and and obviously Oregon as well. So I have no idea what to expect going into this game. Is this going to be a good UCLA team, or will they be exposed on Friday? It's 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 the biggest question we have in the Pac-12 right now because they're the only Pac-12 team that that didn't play a marquee non-conference game of any kind, and then they started the conference season against Colorado, the one team that I think every everybody is penciling in as a win. Colorado, I heard, became like the first Power Five conference team to lose their first four games by twenty-five or more points since like the 1950s. Like, I mean, Colorado is one of the worst college football teams of our lifetime, major college disaster. Yeah. So, um, so, so with all that said, the fact that UCLA, you know, beat them by 28 doesn't really tell us much. Uh, but now I'm looking at, at UCLA schedule and it's Washington, Utah, Oregon are their next three games. Right. (laughs) So there may be a reason why they front loaded the schedule with all of these teams that, that they kind of knew they would have their way with. And that's because they knew it was going to get real in a hurry and they were going to have to really, you know, um, kind of put it all on the line here in these next three weeks. So we'll know a lot more about them in three weeks than we do now. Uh, My sense is, is, the the Pac-12 kind of has a clear top four, which is going to be in some order, Washington and Oregon from the north, Utah and USC from the south. And I think it remains to be seen kind of how those teams fit. But I think any one of those teams winning the conference wouldn't really surprise me. I don't think UCLA is in that category, but I think they're in the category with the Beavers and the Cougars and Cal which is like they're good enough to beat any of those top teams uh, when, when things go right. And if they can string a couple together, they might kind of be surprising us in November by still being in that conversation somehow. Um, so I think, I, think they're, I think they're pretty good. I think they're, they're good enough that they could win a home game on Friday night against a good Washington team. Uh, but I also you know, could see them losing by 21 points. Agreed. And, and so Mark turning our attention to the Oregon Stanford game, Stanford is coming into uh, Autzen stadium an 8 PM game. Uh, they don't have their starting uh, running back EJ Smith, who has been declared out for the season. Casey Filkins did perform well against the Huskies, ran for 100 yards and really was one of their only offensive threats. But does this Stanford team give you any real cause for concern? Uh, only because of history. Only because last year Oregon lost to a 3-9 and nine Stanford team. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, so there's a sense in which I'm never going to take Stanford for granted. I could go through the whole history of Oregon and Stanford. And uh, – but it does seem like this team is a little overmatched right now. Um, you know, we talked about the, the next three weeks UCLA is facing. Well, Stanford two weeks ago had USC. Then they had Washington. Now they've got Oregon. Next week, they've got Oregon State. Then they've got Notre Dame. Like, and then they still have to play UCLA, Utah, and BYU. So, like, this is a team that just schedule-wise yeah. is, 
is really asking a lot from their guys um, each week, it seems. So uh, if I'm looking at kind of the scores, you know, USC beat them 41-28, Washington beat them 40-22. to Those are both pretty similar mm-hmm. games. Turnovers heavily in favor of USC and Washington. Um, some garbage time yardage there for Stanford to kind of make those games yeah. seem a little closer. So one would think that Oregon should at home win by a similar margin as, as USC and Washington did. Um, but just because of recent history, I'm, I'm not really taking it for granted. I'm hoping that the recent history in this case kind of spurs Oregon to really come out uh, motivated and, and that they just kind of put, put this Stanford team away early. Uh, but but uh, there's also going to be the part of me that's that's going to be just a twinge nervous about it until kickoff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, let's take the last couple of minutes to look at the rest of the Pac-12. Uh, probably the, the most compelling games, Oregon State at number 12, Utah, Cal at WSU. And then a couple of throwaway games, in my opinion, ASU at USC and Colorado at Arizona. So, Mark, uh, that that uh, Beavers versus Utes game, uh, obviously the, the Beavers performed admirably against USC, really had their opportunity to win that game late in the fourth quarter. Uh, do you see them having any kind of uh, you know, game plan to, to get past Utah this weekend? No, I, I think I think Utah wins convincingly because of a couple things. One, um, the Beavers beat Utah last year, and I think that that game is going to stick in the minds of the Utah players. Two, the game is in Utah, not in Corvallis. Right. And then three, uh, I think the Beavers have got to be so emotionally spent from that home atmosphere against USC and playing four quarters of really competitive football only to have that game taken away from them in the last minute and a half, basically when USC scored the decisive touchdown. I think that is such a gut punch to lose a game like that and then have to kind of get yourself back up and go on the road to play a team that's going to have a little chip on their shoulder already for you. And that is probably a little better than the team you just played. Mm -hmm. It just, it's, you know, I, I don't, I don't like the Beavers' chances. Whereas I look at somebody like the Cougs playing Cal, and I think that's about the caliber that you want. The Cougs had their heart ripped out. Mm. They get to take the field again at home. They're playing a team that's not quite as good as the team they just played. Right. And it's kind of, okay, this is a chance to kind of kind of regain some hope for the conference season. Uh, I'm not saying necessarily that, that Washington State will, will beat Cal, but if I'm betting on one of those two teams, I'm I'm betting on the Cougars and I'm staying away from from the Beavers. I I I think this is going to be a really tough week for them. Would love to be wrong. Would love to have Beaver fans texting me on Saturday night, uh, telling me I didn't believe in them. But uh, I I just don't see it. Well, Cal's three and one, narrowly losing to Notre Dame. WSU is three and one, narrow narrowly losing to uh, to to Oregon. Uh, both teams, I think, better than maybe we expected at the beginning of the season. Which team winning is better for Washington and Oregon? Well, I don't, I don't know that one's particularly 
uh, better. I mean, Washington still has to play them both. Uh, I mean, I, I guess if Washington state wins the rest of their games, that's great for Oregon because, uh, they already have a win in, in place over a team that could then just kind of climb the poles. Uh, but on the, on the same token, like if Cal turns out to be pretty good when Oregon plays them, that's a chance to play a better team down the road. So, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily look at it that way. I think I have a little more long-term hope in the Cougars than I do in Cal, just because I think, I think Cam Ward has a higher upside at quarterback than Jack Plummer. And we've already seen this team beat Wisconsin on the road and then play or outplay Oregon for 55 minutes at home. Yeah. You know, Cal almost beat Notre Dame. Um, but we haven't seen like that caliber of, of performance from them that we've, we've seen from the Cougars yet. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, I don't know if we did this last week, but Mark, do you have a, a score prediction for the, the Stanford game? Yeah, if we're, if we're kind of using the last two weeks of their games as, as a guide, I would say uh, 45-24. Okay. All right. Very good. 45-24. And for the Washington-UCLA game, we're averaging, I think, right around 44 points a game. And I'm going to go ahead and stay close to that. I'm going to say 42 to... 31 42 to 31 on the road at ucla washington huskies all right now i i just want to say here warren at the beginning of the season i gave washington a loss to michigan state and then i backed off it when we did our predictions i also gave them a loss in this game if you remember when mm-hmm. we went through i i said i thought uh ucla would get the better of them so i'm i'm gonna lean into that here just for the sake of of some intrigue okay. And, but I think it's, it's going to have to be kind of a wild shootout and we're going to have to have some uncharacteristic turnovers from the Huskies to make that happen. But it's going to have to be like a 45 to 42 type game. And I'm not sure UCLA is up for that, but that's the prediction that I'm going to go with. Okay. Well, let's see what happens, but let's go ahead and wrap it up. Thank you, everybody, for listening to The Dog and Duck Show. Be sure to like, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your dog neighbors, and your duck neighbors. But for all my duck fans out there, go dogs. And for all my duck fans, go ducks. We'll catch you next time.